Do you wonder if others are dealing with the same project management challenges as you? Not sure where to turn for guidance and leadership? Office Hours are in session as we discuss project management and PMOs with global leaders, hearing their story and learning their secrets to success. Our goal is to empower you and help you elevate your PMO and project management career to new heights. Welcome back to Project Management Office Hours with your host, PMO Joe. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours, the number one live project management radio show in the U.S., and we're broadcasting to you today from the Phoenix Business Radio X Studios in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, PMO Joe, and for the next hour, we'll be talking project management with our special guest. Uh, Before we get into the show, just wanted to take a moment to thank the PMI Washington, D.C. chapter Fair Lakes Luncheon host uh, had me this week, earlier this week, I presented Empowering People to Deliver Results webinar. I uh, had a great turnout, received some really great feedback, and of course, just wanted to thank them for that opportunity. Also, let our listeners know here in Phoenix, uh, we have the Arizona State University Project Management Summit coming up on September 10th. That will be a live event. Uh, That will run from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Arizona time. You can go out to their website and register for that. This will be the first PM Summit that ASU is putting on, and they plan to have it as an annual event. Unfortunately, obviously, as with everything else impacted by the COVID pandemic, uh, but you still get a great lineup of speakers, including a keynote presentation from former guest Ruth Pierce. Uh, So really excited to have Ruth joining that. And I'll be speaking there, as well as a couple other former guests, Eric Doc Wright and Steve Fulmer will be presenting as well. So head over to https uto.asu.edu slash events slash pm dash summit dash 2020. That, boy, that's a mouthful. Uh, but if you just Google Arizona PM Summit, uh, you'll get a link to be able to go out to that. Also, I'll be presenting at the upcoming PMO Impact Summit, which runs from September 14th to the 26th. That is put together uh, by Laura Bernard, another former guest of ours. Uh, Laura does a great job. She's assembled over 80 leaders from around the world who will be presenting. Registration is free thanks to the sponsor she has uh, organized for that event. Uh, So go out to PMOImpactSummit.com. Register for that free event um, and check out my presentation during that as well. And, of course, thanks to our sponsor, the PMO Squad. They're the home of the Purpose Driven PMO. Visit thepmosquad.com to learn how the squad can support your project management team with our resources, training, and, of course, PMO builds and recovery. Also, a reminder to everyone to visit projectmanagementofficehours.com to see upcoming episodes and listen to all of our previous episodes. Um, We've got an amazing lineup of guests coming up for the rest of this year and actually into next year as well. So let's get into today's show, and I'm really excited to have our special guest, Randy Englund, join us. Thanks so much for joining me, Randy. If you take a moment here to introduce yourself to all the listeners. Hello, Joe. It's, and it's my delight to be here as well. Project management is my passion. And I think uh, from an early age, I found that when I was doing projects, I'm in my element and I have an aptitude for it. I think that way. And I've had times where I've been sort of a reactive or maintenance mode, and that wasn't my thing. But uh, even when I was in the field with GE Medical installing radiology equipment, when I could manage them as projects, then I really felt into my element. And when I went into Hewlett-Packard and was able to get a project management position and work in the project office there as our project management initiative, uh, this was just delightful. It was something that uh, I was able to be an internal consultant. And I was at HP for 22 years. I think it was during that time that uh, met Dr. Robert J. Graham, and he and I wrote the book, Creating an Environment for Successful Projects. And that really opened the door for me to really, uh, first of all, the collaboration with another person who taught in executive education at work and many other things. But uh, uh, it's just been a wonderful collaboration and have gone on 
Since I left HP in 2000 as an independent consultant, worked with Alfonso Bucero to write uh, several books on project sponsorship and on uh, the complete project manager. So I continue talking about these topics. I do seminars for the Project Management Institute. I teach online at Northeastern University on a course about leading and managing technical projects. So it's it's delightful to, to stay involved with those activities, to hear the pain that people feel and, and you know, help turn on the light bulbs for people to see things can be differently. So I think part of my purpose is to help people change thinking. How do we create environments that are the way we want to work and support us to do our best work? And so I'd like to share some of that with your listeners here today. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. And obviously, I love when I hear somebody say, uh, talk about their purpose, because with the PMO squad, of course, our purpose-driven PMO uh, is so important to us. And I, I also uh, loved how you said how you've just known from an early age, you know, when people ask me, how long have you been a project manager? And I'm I'm 52 now. And I said, well, I, I guess we'll throw away the first year. So we'll go 51 years I've been a project manager, because that's just how I was born, right? I I don't have to work at becoming a project manager, just like many of our great singers or musicians or athletes are just born that way. That's how I feel, right? It just, right. It just beca- helping organize and lead and motivate and influence people uh, just becomes uh, an innate skill within me. Well, it's also the thing that uh, you really do tap a lot of multiple disciplines. And that's what I found during my career that uh, I was working in sales development for HP and, and marketing and being able to understand the sales process and be able to say, wow, this is very important to not only just be a salesperson, but to sell yourself, your ideas, your project. And then being able to understand negotiating. When I took a negotiating course over 30 years ago, I think it changed my life, you know, and it's a lifelong skill. And so those are some things that uh, even when I, before I was in project manager, I'd read a lot of the literature or, you know, worked on my MBA in management. And I said, how can I use this stuff? Well, when I got into being a project manager consultant, I could be a conduit for all of these things and be able to realize negotiations, influence, politics, change, conflict, all these things have a whole discipline around them that we can incorporate and use to get results. And, and that's the thing about project managers, we get results. And I've worked with some very smart people who just love to think about big ideas. And, uh, you know, I remember talking with Michael Brockton, another consultant, saying, you know, I don't necessarily come up with the best idea. But once that idea is out there, I can engineer it. I can make it happen. And that's what I love to do. Well, I think what's critical, what you just shared there, is that project management is so important uh, to incorporate people skills, right? And when you get sales training or leadership training, uh, an MBA, you're learning more than just uh, the specific content of the topic, right? You're really learning how to be an influencer of people. And- yeah, my undergraduate was in electrical engineering and and I thought from high school, that was always my thing. But it, as I got into it, got into the technical, the details, I said, ah. but when I did the MBA and the people skills and applying them in a technical environment, ah, that's, that's really a delightful place to be. Yeah. And it's, geez, it just took me back to memory lane, right? I started out college in an accounting program. Three semesters in, I said, how am I going to interact with people in this profession? I said, this is the wrong one for me. Uh, and my undergraduate degree ended up being in uh, business, but my master's degree is in organizational communication, right? I just needed that interaction with people, uh, again, because of the way I'm built, right? The way I'm pre-wired uh, to understand how important those people skills are. I mean, what what is it about people skills that you find necessary within project managers or maybe even lacking within project managers? Right. I think the the hook that I use for a lot of my materials, seminars, and books is that oftentimes, much like you and I both just shared, we started out as a tactical professional. And then we get to the point that it looks like we're on a plateau. It's same old, same old. And and where do I go from here? And to see the mountains off in the distance and saying, how do I get to there? 
And that's what I think is where people's skills come into play. You can be as technical as you want, but it can only get you so far. It's going to take selling your ideas, influencing other people, dealing with the politics. Anytime you get more than two, three people together, you're going to have a political environment. And how do you essentially move through that particular environment so that you can get people to a consensus and working together? And that's what I think is, is very important because people matter. And uh, when I worked with Dr. Bob uh, with our first book, you know, his first book, first book was uh, Project Management, as if people mattered. <laughs> and, and that was the first book in my experience that combined the technical with the behavioral side of project management. And that just opened the doors for me in my whole career has really been based upon that, trying to focus on the people skills, the soft skills that make a difference in how effective somebody can, can be in getting results. Yeah, it seems like the industry, our profession, right, is starting to come around to this idea. I, I, I certainly don't think it's been ignored up to this point, but it hasn't been a focal point up to this point. And we've had several guests on over the past couple of years that their now professional career is dedicated to this work, uh, Ruth Pierce and, and several others that really have focused in on this and how we can look at our team strengths, not only our own, but understanding their character strengths, understanding their, ter- their personality types. All right. And Dr. Barbara Troutline and, and the work that she's done with change management and understanding our own skills and strengths. What's kind of the top skills, right? Or the number one skill maybe in your history where you've found that that's the most important one to really touch on? When I was still in our seminar on the, the complete project manager, we, we first kind of went through a number of, of the skills and we got a lot of feedback from people that saying, you know, hey, you only got into some of the, the politics or the influence skills later on. But to me, that's most important. So we actually changed the format uh, and direction. And in fact, even with the second edition of the complete project manager, we reformatted the chapters in the sense of covering those people skills, those individual skills that I can do myself and improve and develop, such as leadership, influence, negotiation, politics. And then after that point, then you start dealing with the larger environment with other people. So then you have to deal with conflict management. You have to deal with change management, uh, dealing with the environment. Uh, what kind of environment are you working in? And, and then, of course, sales comes out all along uh, throughout that. So those are some things that uh, I think I just highlighted a few of the areas that are super important for people to be more effective. Yeah, and what I love is there's a lot of free resources out there for people to use nowadays to to capture their own strengths, right, and character strengths and, and their teams, right? Uh, a great example I have is we went out to uh, my own organization, the PMO Squad, I had one of our project managers who was in the military for, he's a veteran, go out and do his VIA character strengths. Uh, I had done that and we compared. And what was interesting is we both had commented previously how we talk openly to each other. Uh, I'm originally a New Yorker, so it's okay for me to just be honest and tell you the truth about stuff. Sometimes it comes off a little crass, sometimes not. But he has that same mindset from his time in the military. And when we did our character strengths, both of us, our number one character strength was honesty. So it became apparent to us that we had chuckled previously about how we could be honest with each other uh, and share some things that maybe you wouldn't normally share with some of your employees. Uh-huh. But we each needed that, right? We were, we were actually thriving off of that honesty. So it's as we talk about these skills, it's important to learn not just your own, right, but your team, right? Understand what your team skills are and, and go visit these sites that offer these free assessments so that you can go out there and understand uh, who you're working with, right? Not just the the person, but the strengths behind that person. Corollary to the honesty is trust, which is super important. Yeah. And then also that individuals are authentic and they act with integrity, in fact, that's a, a theme that's permeated all of my material, that uh, 
People want to follow leaders who are authentic, which means they say what they believe. Because I have seen some managers say something. For instance, I think it came up, uh, you know, they got a new CEO at HP and, and she said, well, we should only compare ourselves with our competitors. And I don't think Dave Packard would have ever said a statement like that because he always wanted to be ahead of the pack. Because if you're comparing yourself with others, you are looking at their taillights. Yeah. He yeah. wanted to be out in front. And when I heard some managers say that, and I actually went up and confronted one manager who was passing that word along. And I said, do you believe that? To me, he wasn't being authentic. And I think when you're authentic, you say what you believe. Even if you don't like it, you can kind of say, well, I've been chartered to say this and announce this. Let's give it a try. You know, see what happens. And, and do, this integrity means you do what you said. And an integrity crime is something that I think has hurt so many teams because people see, ah, they said that, but they don't believe it and they don't act on it. And and those things go along with trust. And, you know, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to have trust. Well, you can work on being trustworthy. And that's where especially good project managers work on being trustworthy. Meaning if they said they're going to do something by a certain time, they do it. They get it done. And, you know, if not, they early on kind of say what's happening, but they work on being trustworthy. And I think all those things go together. And those are some ways of, of being honest. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think this is you, a couple of the items you point out there with integrity and trust end up being a challenge for project managers because we're sometimes the redheaded stepchild in the organization. And an executive, you say, well, last week we had a stash report and we were green and this week we're red. How did that happen, right? I can't trust what you're going to tell me from this point forward. Uh, and there's a fear within project managers, right? Leaders have to understand it's okay to be truthful and share the good news and the bad news. And too often project managers struggle with this and they go from green to red uh, and executives lose that trust, and it's hard to earn back after you've lost it. Oh, for sure. You know, you had also mentioned the sales uh, training you've went through, right? And, of course, selling is full of negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. How how does that play within project management? When's the right time to negotiate? <laughs> uh, always. <laughs> you know, especially in, in project management, when your sponsor is giving you an assignment, that's the prime time to negotiate. That if you've been given something, you know, I want it good, I want it fast, and I want it cheap. Right. And, and you know from the, the triple constraints of project management, you can't have all three. You've got to prioritize. It's most important to have scope or to have a meet a schedule or to use whatever resources you have. And so what's the priority? So right at the beginning of every project, you need to negotiate that. If you're being given impossible goals, you need to push back because otherwise you're being set up for failure. And we don't want that. We don't want people to have to fail. So it's negotiating at the front of the project with your sponsors. You're going to be uh, negotiating with team members throughout the project. Maybe they're being assigned to it. Are they, do they want to do this project? Do they want to be on the team? That's a negotiation and a change or somebody's proposing to make a change to a specification or something or a schedule or, or different resources. That's a negotiation. So we negotiate every day. Like I said, once I really took a course on it, it, it was uh, uh, mind blowing. It, it was just fantastic. And, and my wife has picked up on it. Even when we are in Hong Kong, you can negotiate with every salesperson. You can negotiate when you go to Nordstrom's. Okay. And it, it's something that many times when I'm doing a starting off the negotiation module or teaching a course on it, I ask of you, uh, how many of you at some point have taken a negotiating course or read a book? And maybe only two or three of us have our hand up. And I say, okay, put those hands up high. Now look around the room. Look at the winners. Now what about the rest of you losers? Now, you know, and I don't want to insult anybody, but I kind of want to make the the point that uh, it's a lifelong skill that will help you every day as you learn to negotiate. You learn, you know, to, to focus on 
not the person, but what is the the, the problem or the issue, and, and and don't get stuck on a position, but try to probe for what are the key points that somebody cares about. How do you find that out? You ask questions. You ask. You pose what if type of activities, and then you know you really try to put together. Well, you know, you're asking me to do that, but that's not an industry standard. That's not what uh, a legal court would, would support. So you've got a lot of things in the preparation. In fact, preparation to negotiate is something that's crucial. And uh, I think one of the things that uh, I found when I had an offer to join HP, and I'd been at GE before that, and you know, I was delighted to get the offer. And they had a salary proposal. Well, I pushed back because I realized probably the only time I can negotiate a salary is at the beginning. So I stuck to it and, and asked him to, you know, he finally got the point. He's telling me all the other benefits. But I said, you know, it really came down to the money. And, and he got it. So he said to me, well, let me think about it. Call me back the next day and say, well, I thought about it. And we believe our offer is fair, so we're going to stick with it. I said, well, I'm disappointed, but I accept your offer. <laughs> I prided myself, a pat on the back, because I at least stood up to it. And as only later I found out, I was up against a master negotiator, and I stood my ground, and I felt good about it. I didn't necessarily get a different outcome, but that's okay. At least part of it was I impressed him with my ability to persevere and to really argue for what I thought was important. And those are some things that uh, are going to happen almost daily. I was talking with a PMO leader, I think it might have been yesterday, uh, who just started a new job last year. He didn't really want to move with his family, but he, he was on the market, so he applied for a job. And um, they gave him an offer. And he was kind of surprised, and his wife said, no. We are not moving. So he said, I'm just going to throw him a number. What would be the number, honey, that you would move for? So she gave him the number. He threw it over to the company. And they said, okay, you got it. So, now, so they've moved, right? And had he not been willing, and his wife, of course, willing to move for a number, right? That's the part of the negotiation. There's always something out there worth negotiating over. There's a cost or a price or something that's achievable. But we're often in the project management space because we're technically driven. We're afraid to ask, right? And when we do make the ask, sometimes we can get surprised. The response <laughs> can actually be positive, right? It can be in our favor. How, how, do, how do you teach that, right? How do you teach the, it's kind of that, that moment where you're going to bungee jump or skydive, right? And you got all the courage in the world to get up to the top but there's still a second level of courage you have to go through to get off the edge. Right. right. And, and that's, it may be out of your comfort zone. That's right. So how and, do you, you, uh, you, I try you to teach tell people, you know, it may not always be uh, comfortable or even conflict free, but go for it and, and muster the courage. I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things, how do you teach it? I think it's by telling the stories and being able to share examples of how they did something like that. And, being able to um, being able to see other examples, I've had uh, when I've taught negotiated modules, I've had people share their stories. Even in, with my online course, one of our modules in negotiating, I have each of the students. They all have to post it online, and you can see everybody else's stories. And you realize how they negotiated with the credit card company, how they negotiated with the client, how they negotiated with the difficult customer or boss, and so forth. And I think as you get those stories, you're able to kind of see, I can do that too. That's a possibility. And and uh, I think it's getting a few of those under your belt that you realize. And, and remember, I was successful when I did so-and-so. Use that as a means to kind of say, and I can do it again this time. And I think, you know, those are things that, a lot of it comes from experience. Yeah, I think back to early in my career, just as a, a project manager, maybe about four or five years in at that point, um, I was working within 
Textron Financial at the time. We had a really important project come up. And general manager of the division, Jerry Britton, had asked for me to be the project manager. Uh, and Jerry, who's the one of the most amazing leaders I've ever had the pleasure of working for, said, Joe, what can we give you as part of the business to make sure that this project is successful? No leader had ever asked me that before. How was I going to answer that? So I said, well, you know, Jerry, I would love to have a business leader join this project full time so it'll show the business how important it is to the business because it's your project. It's not an IT project, right? Thinking no way in the world would this division general manager give up a resource to go work on this project? Sure enough, he said, sure, you've got it. You've got your resource. He said, all right, anything else, Joe? And at this point I'm thinking, well, Hey, he just said yes to something. I'm shooting for the stars. Uh, I said, Jerry, I noticed that you always talk at our quarterly meetings, how sales resources have earned their quarterly bonuses. You mentioned how important this project is to you. How about if the project team can win quarterly bonuses if we stay on track and can achieve the project in the timeline we've laid out? He said, done deal. You got it. Uh, though That project gave me the confidence for everything that's happened in my career afterwards. Because by asking, well, one, having a leader that supported us, but two, getting the courage to ask allowed me to know that I had that within me in every other project, every business opportunity, ever this radio show, I mean, everything along the way, I've never felt hindered because of that project. So for all of the PMs that are listening out there, right, who may think, hey, I'm just a few years in, I don't have the, the capability. Believe me, it's in you. It's just a matter of pushing forward, like you said, Randy, right, and get out of your comfort zone and ask for something. Uh, begin the negotiation. Nothing happens if you don't begin, right? Right. One of the takeaways I said, if there's only one takeaway from the negotiating module is ask for it. Because if you don't ask for it, the answer is always no. Right. And they might just say yes. Or I've even had occasion where I got more than what I asked for. You know, I was in the field, wanted to get a tool. We had a special deal. And I said, well, if we bought two, we'd get two of the add-ons. And wow, I got more than I asked for. And uh, I did the same thing when I was leaving HP. I had a small company and I didn't want to leave. But uh, so I asked for the money. I asked for signing bonus. I would cover everything I'd lose and stock options and benefits and, and so forth. And I got it. So I think I, I agree with you that uh, asking for it, they're not going to think less of, less of you for doing that. A lot of people don't do it because they think somebody will think bad for, for the asking. In most cases, they're, they're impressed with what uh, you're asking for, and you get them thinking about it. And they're probably going to be impressed more than they're going to be upset with what you're asking for. You know, of, of course, projects are always about improving something, right? It could be a new service. It could be a new product. It could be a compliance measure. It could be something, right, that we're trying to improve organizational performance on. What's the sweet spot there, right? How do we, how do, we do that? The sweet spot is, uh, I actually have a graphic where I've taken all three of my books together and put them into a Venn diagram. And one of them is the environment, the creating an environment for successful projects. And the second diagram or circle is project sponsors. And the third circle is complete project managers. The sweet spot is where all three of those come together, hmm. where you have the environment that is green, in other words, it's not toxic. And I'm not talking about the physical environment. I'm talking about the inner relationships and how people work together. Is that green? Is it such where people trust each other? People are sharing their vision, that they have a psychological safety, which Google has found is one of the most important factors for high performance of teams. So what is that environment like? And then the second circle of project sponsors, you have excellence in project sponsorship. I have a survey where I did with, uh, I was doing an executive briefing for, for a group in a power company. They scored themselves, they're all sponsors and they scored themselves low. But the question, how successful are your projects? They scored high. I asked them the question, how can you be successful when you're so poor 
at sponsorship? Their answer was because we have good project managers. Aha, you're lucky. Just think how much more is possible for less resources, time, whatever, if you also had high-performing sponsors. I got them right where I wanted them. So excellence in project sponsorship is important. And I know that PMI believes that, but I think there's more talk than walk because we're really trying to address it. It's a tough audience to get to. They don't often know that as a sponsor that they're part of the problem. They got a lot of pressures from above, below, from others, and very busy people, very capable people, but they also don't always understand project management. Right. And then the third piece is complete project managers that have all those multiple disciplines under their belt, as we talked about with influence and leadership and and negotiation and political skills. So when you get all three of those things together and you overlap them, the sweet spot is where they intersect. And in, in my graphic, it's kind of like a small green spot in the middle there. And what that sweet spot is, is that that's where you get the highest performance. It's like a portal into achievement within the organization. And what my aim or purpose is, how do we bring those three circles closer together so that that green spot, that sweet spot in the middle expands? That's my goal. That's my purpose. And that's what it's doing. In other words, complete project managers understand how to talk with their sponsors. Don't talk details because they don't care about all the details unless you have a very detail-oriented sponsor. But talk the big picture. Talk sponsor talk. Talk about the environment. Talk about uh, when you're talking with team members. Talk more of the details or talk their language or engineer talk. And so, you know, you've got those people who can understand that they realize they are hopefully not a victim of their environment, but they are subject to the environment in which they are operating. And I've been, some of my seminars where I see some people at a table who are probably equally skilled as project managers, but I hear from one, he's in a very supportive environment. And I hear from the other that he's in a very toxic environment. I can almost predict or guess who's going to achieve more, not because of their own personal skills, but because of the environment in which they're operating. And so my advice to those people is to assess your environment, be able to realize, is it green? Is it fully supportive, full speed ahead? Or do you have a lot of issues that you're going to have to deal with? And you may have to scale down your, what you're promising, your expectations, so that you can be successful in spite of the environment. So you talked earlier about some of the, the assessments. I have on my website, I have an assessment around the environment all the 10 pieces of the puzzle that go into it. That's a free assessment that people can, when I have my students do it, a lot of them realize I never even thought about those things. Yeah. And then I have an assessment for the sponsors. How effective is your sponsor? Gosh, I never really thought that much about the role of the sponsor. You've opened up my eyes about how important that is. And then they also have an assessment. How complete are you as a project manager that realize in each of those areas, where are you strong? that you can leverage those skills where there's some development opportunities. And so I think when all three of those things come together, that's what I talk about as a sweet spot. So you mentioned uh, that assessment on your website. What's, what is the website? Where do people go to see that? My website is England PMC. So it's spelled E-N-G-L-U-N-D. P is in project, M is in management, C is in consultancy.com. So it's englandpmc.com. And there's several sections uh, that they can go to and they can be able to talk about successful projects. They can talk about complete project managers or sponsorship and all those assessment tools are there. And then what I do with that, if they will submit that information back to me, their data, I have put that into a database. And I have some thousands of people worldwide who have completed those surveys. I can provide a benchmark report that individuals can see how they compare to others, you know, who are, first of all, it's a selective audience. It's the people who care about that thing. Are you at the 50th percentile? Are you at the 80th percentile? And to get to 100, you know, is it worth it? 
Or I've had some people ask me, oh, what, what if you have the 10th percentile? <laughs> That's where you and hire I you say, to come in and help my them, condolences. Right? <laughs> That's great. And you mentioned, right, the psychological safety, and, and that was, you referenced Google's Project Aristotle there, right? And again, these are resources that we all have access to. Google has been gracious in sharing all of that research, right? I mean, it's out there for us to go get if we just are motivated to go find it. And there is some really great information that's available through their research there. Uh, And as project managers, yeah, I think it's really important that we understand how teams work, right? And Google, I wouldn't say anybody has perfected anything, right? But Google has done a really good job with that research project to identify several factors that influence team success. And I think number one in that list is psychological safety, as you mentioned. And yeah. Another thing that, that I, I was intrigued as you were talking, right, is this green environment, right? And, and when you hear that, of course, we think environmentalists, right, and, and the Green Act, but you're, you're referring to more the working environment, right? How safe is it within that environment? And you elaborated a little bit. Can you dig deeper into that and help us understand that a little bit better? Sure. The corollary of the opposite is a toxic environment. And a lot of that would be lack of trust, a lot of conflict. People aren't sharing their information. So they're very closed. So that's kind of like the toxic environment, which a lot of organizations still are very toxic. Whereas if we try to switch to a more green environment, it really is a point where you, you, you start with people who have a, a vision. It's not like something imposed upon them, but as I work with the team to come up with a shared vision that they get excited about, that they see at the desired future state, that's one aspect of the green environment, that they were part of creating that vision and they are excited to make it happen. They, they feel that they're, they're, if they can pull this thing off, that's, that's going to be great. You know, this is, this is fantastic. I'm going to achieve high on the Maslow hierarchy of self-actualization because I'm an active player with people who are not, uh, not fighting with me and in conflict with it or competing with me, but they're collaborating with me. As we talked earlier about trust, the trust is present. And I was working with one engineering management company that, uh, First of all, I was very impressed with them. And the president and their director of project delivery were fantastic. And, and they read my book and, and we deal with it. But as I interviewed a cross-section of their people, that trust word came up almost 100%. And when I got back with them, what I said to them was saying, I put the one word slide up, trust. It's like, the default is that I don't trust you, not because you screwed up in the past or you know, put a knife in my back type of thing, but I don't know you. And I'm saying, this is important because you are addressing that right here by being together, get to know each other so that you can make the default is I trust you instead of not trusting you. They're in that sense, creating green environment because the trust is there, that they have a shared sense of purpose. I might ask a team, you know, if I come in, I said, the boss comes into the room and here's a team meeting and said, oh, I just talked to our, our sponsor and uh, he says, uh, your project is, is canceled and you're all fired. Okay, that's not true. But if it were, what are we going to lose? What will our customers lose? What will our organization not have in place if our project is not done? And in that sense, do we know what our purpose is? Okay. So I share with you earlier what my purpose is to help people change thinking to create those environments. You shared your purpose statement. And I asked one general contractor one time, he said, yeah, we have a purpose statement. I said, well, would you share it with us? It's written down somewhere. (laughs) I'd have to dig it out. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, okay, you flunk. It should be something that is front of the mind. It's ever present. It's something that every day, you saying, I'm working on this purpose towards this vision. And, and I have people who are collaborating with me, who are sharing with me, that uh, are trusting me and I'm trusting them. Even if we disagree, we can be open about conflict. Conflicts are shared and put out on front of the table instead of hidden under the rug 
or being such where, you know, they're not openly addressed. I think those are just some of the examples of what I describe as a, a green working environment. It's those in relationships among people. That helps me certainly understand it more. And I, as you're speaking, I think um, back to some of the talks that I've given about empowering people to deliver results. One of the examples I use of organizations that empower their people is the United States military. They do it by bringing the work to the team as opposed to the team to the work, right? In traditional project management sense, we bring the, the team to the work and then the team disbands afterwards. And they don't have that trust, right? They haven't worked together to understand that they are going to collectively work together and to collaborate. They're going to work towards a common mission. But in the military, they they have teams that train together, that build trust. They, you know, that you've got my six, right? They understand that no matter what's going to happen behind me, you've got my back. And then they bring missions to them because those teams have now been trained to trust each other and be effective. This is the movement towards Agile, right, where teams exist and we bring teams to work. We we have a mission slash a sprint. We get that work out and then we move on to the next sprint. Through all of the work that you've doing, uh, teaching and, and capturing data and research, do you see any information in there or trends about this difference between preset teams and bringing the work to that team versus forming teams and bringing the work to a, a formed or bring that team that just was formed for the project. What have you, have you seen anything with that? And I know that's uh, maybe slightly off topic where we were headed, but it's, it seems like uh, having that trust of being teammates and it, it seems like it would really impact project effectiveness. Well, it certainly does. And you're going to have different personalities on every single team. And one of the things coming back to the complete project manager and the team is to being able to understand motivations. Not everybody on a team is going to be motivated by the same thing. And I think one of the key things that that I found, whether the team is self-directed or if it's appointed for the project or they propose something themselves and, and they want to make it happen, whatever is upfront, try to understand how are people motivated who are on that team. And three questions are such that can be asked is that, why do you want to be on this project? Second question is, what can you contribute to this project? And the third question is, what do you want to take away from this project? And I think I especially pay attention to that third question because that's going to be a clue as to how each individual is motivated. And I think taking the time up front on any team to understand those things and be able to understand, you know, somebody just wants to work alone. They want to not have to deal with a lot of team meetings and be able to contribute to what it is. But yet you still need to get their agreement and you want to get them to make a, a conscious commitment that they will be accountable for the success of the team, not just accountable for their own work. And this is another key word for me that uh, I've come to embrace, and that's accountability. And it's not like uh, a reactive thing where something went wrong, who do we blame, who do we hold accountable? That's the reactive. I view accountability as a, a proactive, that uh, as you start up a team, you, you say, this is what our vision is that we have formulated. This is, these are the people we have on the team. We know why everybody's here, what they each can contribute. And, and then we can say, would you commit to being on this team? Even if you only have 20% time commitment to this team, will you commit 100% of that 20% or maybe a little, budget a little bit more? And, and the other question that I would ask each individual or project leader to say is, how do I get people to want to work with me on this project? <laughs> because more than likely, and I've done surveys on this as well, how many people have direct reports? How many people report directly to you on this project? Yeah, pretty low. How many of the other people on the team members have other things going on in their lives and in their work? Lots. So the question is, how do I get them to want to work on this project, give it priority, and make sure they meet all of their commitments? The answer to that is accountability. And along with that, explicit commitments 
And the third aspect of it is ask them. Define what accountability means, ask them, will they commit to it and, and make the, the, the complete commitment. And I think those are ways that uh, whatever type of team you have, it doesn't matter whether it's an agile team, a waterfall team, uh, any other uh, self-directed or forced team uh, type of activity. These are some things that I have found in my experience are universally, universally applicable because people are people. And, you know, when Dr. Bob, when I first did our book in the, uh, what, mid-90s, and we did a third edition just last year, we realized not too much has changed. Hmm. What has changed is the stories that we tell and how they get implemented. But the key things are important. The universal factors that are important for people working together are pretty common, pretty universal. And those are things that I've devoted my life's work to try to address and improve and help people embrace them as opposed to avoiding them or uh, ignoring them and creating a toxic environment. You know, that's, it's fascinating to hear you talk because so much of what you're saying seems rooted in uh, the data, the research and experience, of course, that you've had. It, it makes me wonder, based on your assessments and your surveys, uh, everything that you've come up with, what are some of the issues that most often come up that project management is confronted with? And I think you've probably hit on some of them by the inverse, right? By telling us what we should do, you're probably schooling us on what the problems are. The number one issue I hear from project managers worldwide is that upper managers do not appreciate, understand, or support the project management process. And when I say those words, I see all the heads around the room nodding. When we have them do a force field exercise where pick some issue, I don't dictate what the issue should be, pick some issue that you would like to do, understand the positive and the negative forces. Typically, right in the middle of that is something around upper management support. And, and that's why we did the book on creating an environment for successful projects. That's why we dealt with project sponsorship. That's why complete project managers need to manage up the organization. Some people say that's not my job. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it is. If yeah. you want to be successful and sustainably and advance, and get across that plateau, you do need to manage up the organization. Because a lot of these upper managers were, even as smart as they are, as talented and as good they are, when they went through the project phase of their career, assuming they did, they didn't have all the stuff that we have today. They don't have the VIA uh, character assessment. They didn't have the studies about psychological safety. They just got the job done. How'd they do it? Brute force, seat of the pants, maybe a lot of dead bodies in their way, a lot of toxic environments. But yay, we got the job done. Right. Why can't you? Why do you need all this stuff? Why do you need this project management stuff? What do you mean we need a vision statement? We need a purpose statement. We need a work breakdown structure. We need a plan. We need, you know, a project charter. They a lot of them don't understand that. Now I'm not I'm talking in, in general because I know there are a lot of Superb examples of people who do, upper managers who do. And those are in the high-performing organizations. You know, I know you're in Phoenix. I was down in Motorola one time, and I know a VP got himself certified as a project management professional because he was setting the example that he understood project management. But the key issue in many cases is that people are working for managers or sponsors who do not truly understand that process. and. It took me a while at HP when I was doing a program manager, putting a new process in place. And when I left that group, my manager's manager said to me, you know, it wasn't intuitively obvious to me what you were doing to get the support for that process. But now what I see what you did and the results you got, I came to realize that, uh, you know, you're a very process-oriented person and you get things done. He had given some assignments to my boss, you know, the manager in between. They didn't quite get done. He said, I should have given them to you because you'll get them done. And so I, I'm excited about that because, you know, he came to see it. He, he didn't understand it initially. I had to do my best work. 
I had to persevere. I had to use my passion and persistence and, and patience to get it done. But realizing I'm following a proven process, whether it's operating across organizations or getting people committed or on board or being able to share their thoughts and their best ideas to get things done. And I think that's what uh, I think a lot of project managers don't quite view that as part of the job. They just want to do what the tasks are and get the work breakdown structure and manage all those things to the schedule. And there's so much more involved in doing that. And, and so it starts with the project manager, but it also is dependent upon project sponsors and upper managers being able to, to understand it. So uh, part of my work is why I'm hopeful in my lifetime, I can make an impact uh, on many of the project sponsors. That's so why I've written the book. I'd love to do more seminars on project sponsorship, but I can't get PMI to, to uh, schedule it. I can't, they don't show up. Yeah. And, okay, that's, so. and what's interesting is the, through pulse of the profession that PMI puts out right their their trend survey information. We see that the number one factor repeatedly year over year in project success is an engaged, active project sponsor. Yep. Uh, so we know it's there. Um, and I think I know one of the reasons why in the project management space, we don't make movement, right? We don't gain ground here. And I'm, so I'm the managing director for the PMO Global Alliance to manage the PMO Global Survey. And this year we're doing the first survey. It's to be the largest PMO survey in the world. Uh, and our focus is on leadership. Uh, so you can go out to the PMO Squad website and there's a link to the survey or you can go out and visit me on LinkedIn and you can see I've got several posts out there on on the survey to have access. But what happens is we promote good project managers to become PMO leaders. PMO leaders are leaders. They're not project managers anymore. And we've not trained them on how to run a functional department within an organization. We haven't taught them how to manage up. We haven't taught them how to work with executives. So executive support for project management lags executive support for the manufacturing line whether that's a real manufacturing line or a virtual, depending on the company, right? So we PMO leaders out there in the world have to understand as leaders, we have to influence our organizations to dedicate the resources, both financial, training, people, et cetera, to execution and delivery of projects, just as we do to operations and product development. And until we do that, I think we're always going to be fighting this battle. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to get some data to support it. So any PMO <laughs> leader out there, uh, please be sure to go out and uh, participate in the PMO Global Survey. We have over 50 countries, I believe it is now, who have uh, participated in this, and it's open through August 31st. Uh, so everybody go out there and, and participate. Likewise, when, when I'm in front of any audience or a seminar, I ask people, will you join with me in the quest to manage up the organization? to make it a difference in what we're trying to accomplish. Not just doing your tasks, but being able to realize the bigger picture and share the stories. And, you know, I'd love to come into organizations and if, if nothing else, just open the door. You know, many times uh, people wonder, why do I have to bring in a consultant to say the same thing I've been saying? And my answer is because it works. Yeah. A lot of times they don't listen to you because they've heard you all along and, and and they know you, but you you know you got an axe grind. But when they get somebody from outside come in and, and and say these things are important, you need to pay attention to them. I have seen that turn heads dramatically, where we can finally get support for doing these issues, for getting the the executive support, getting the environments, getting the, the right people in the project management position. That the people who take over PMOs they understand what a PMO can do. And if it's viewed as a bureaucratic thing that gets in the way, boy, that's not good. But do they have a vision that says, this is the most helpful group for getting things done in this organization? That's what the leader needs to believe in and make happen. Yeah, so as we're thinking, right, and managing up, just a, a, another resource for folks listening is uh, Dana Brownlee, who was a guest on the show previously, has a fantastic book out there called Managing Up. 
um, and it provides great tools for project managers and others to be able to help manage our bosses, right? Well, Randy, we, I, man, but we have a lot to ground to cover, but we are out of time. I would be, uh, we could talk for hours and days on this. We, <laughs> we had joked before the show started that you had said, how long is the show going to run? I said, seven hours. I think we might be able to hit seven hours today, but <laughs> unfortunately we don't have that time. So any uh, last items you want to share with our audience? How can they get in touch with you? Anything that you have uh, coming up, any books or any sessions? I do have a uh, virtual seminar. PMI Seminars World has gone virtual this year. I'm doing a a virtual seminar on integrating people, organizational and technical skills, the complete project manager. It's happening in early October. So go to the PMI.org site and, and register for it. We've had uh, been doing this uh, seminar for a while, and it just, I love it every time we get some really engaged people. So that's coming up. Uh, the books are out there. I talked about the three books. I also have a book on creating the project office. My website is England PMC, that's E N G L U N D P M C dot com. The assessment tools are there. I have uh, a LinkedIn, many articles or blogs. Uh, there's a paper on executive imperatives. How do we, what are the high priority action items that executives can do to improve organizational performance? I put a lot of content in Pinterest. There's some pins that uh, highlight a number of the key things that uh, we've talked about and more. So uh, I believe in keeping to put it out there. And if nobody would like me to talk to them or do a virtual seminar or webinar or a consulting engagement, uh, I'd love to, or even send me an email. And on my website has the email address. I love to interface with other people. Give me a challenge. I'll share your ideas and we'll go from there. Randy, thanks so much. Uh, obviously, a lot of experience and information that you have. You know, And heck, I started the PMO squad because I was tired of being one of those PMO leaders who kept asking the bosses, hey, how can we keep going with what the consultant says? And then it struck me one day, why aren't I a consultant? <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, seven years ago, and that was the evolution I went through. So you're spot on with that one, and uh, you're spot on with just about everything today. And we're very like-minded, and I love the work that you do, uh, and so fortunate to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I also want to thank all of our listeners, right? Without listeners, we don't have a show. So please be sure to visit projectmanagementofficehours.com to check out all of our great shows and guests. Uh, And what a lineup we have coming up. Uh, We are booked into next year, if you can believe that. Uh, So our next show coming up, we have retired Navy SEAL John McCaskill coming on. Uh, And John is now uh, recently retired, but he's got a scrum to go board he's come out with. Talk about hitting retirement and and going, but it's a a great product. Actually, I ordered three of them last week. Uh, Then we have Pimbox 7. Authors Cindy Dionisio and Mike Griffiths. We follow that up with Elizabeth Heron joining us from the UK. Priyapatra from India. It's our first guest live from India. Peter Taylor will be joining from the UK. And of course, he's one of the finalists for PMO Influencer of the Year. Ben Aston then joined us from Canada. And of course, he's host of the Digital PM podcast. Next up is Jason Westland, founder of projectmanager.com. He's originally from New Zealand, but now in Austin, Texas. We finish out the year uh, with Cornelius Fickner, host of the Project Management Podcast, and Kieran Bondale from Canada. And then we start next year with our first guest from Africa, Billy Mwape, joins us from live from Zambia. I mean, wow, what a series of shows we have coming up. I am super excited. And a reminder to everybody that we record these shows and release them as a podcast. So catch us live or catch the replay. Listen to Project Management Office Hours on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, whatever your podcast platform of choice is. And, of course, thanks to our sponsors, the PMO Squad. Visit the PMO Squad website and learn more about the purpose-driven PMO and all of their project management services. That's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. Thanks for listening to another episode of Project Management Office Hours with PMO Joe. 
You're not alone in your project management journey. We're here to help you achieve your goals. Subscribe to Project Management Office Hours on your favorite podcast platform to catch all of our episodes and hear industry leaders share their story and secrets to success.